In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. So today we continue our look at James as we are working through James on this, as part of the Sunday morning lectionary series. And today we are in James chapter 3. So James is continuing to build on his uh, thesis of how do you function as a Christian within the Christian community? How do you work within the church? And so everything that he's writing has to deal with the relationships that people build within the church and the way that that influences the way that they live their everyday life. And so as we go through this, when we look at this next section of James, he moves from talking about Christian life in the world and the way that the gospel has changed the way you see and live uh, your day-to-day life to talking specifically about issues that exist within the church in leadership, but also in the way that congregation members interact with each other and with the leaders of their congregation. Now, as with all things in the church, this is immediately and readily applicable to life in the world as well, because what's good for behavior inside the congregation is generally good for behavior outside of the congregation as well. And so as we see him work through these things, we can learn a lot about how we go about living our day-to-day life. Now, last week, because we didn't we didn't focus on James last week um, during the study, could you give us a little bit more of a background in how James James' letter is different than Paul's letters? He's trying to accomplish much the same thing, but it has a, a right. very different tone and, and flavor to it. Yes. So, as Lutherans, we tend to love Paul and always try to hold James a little bit at arm's length, um, in part because of chapter 2, where he talks very much about the works that a Christian needs to do. Uh, The famous line that comes out of James chapter 2 is, faith without works is dead. And so with that in mind, Lutherans have always been very hesitant to do too much with James because of the fear that if you spend too much time in James and you read too much of the faith without works is dead part of chapter 2, you're going to think that your salvation depends on the things that you've done. The works that you do actually matter in salvation. But that's a very um, coarse reading of James and and not at all what James is getting at because he does not come find himself in conflict with Paul at all. In fact, what James is saying that if you have faith, you can't help but have works follow. They are the natural outgrowth of what God has done for you. And so because you have received the good work that Christ has done, you can't help but be transformed by that, and it manifests itself in the good works that appear in the world around you. And so if you pride yourself in saying, and James says this as well, if I can show you my works and that's good enough, he'll say, no, it's not, show me your faith. But if you say, show me your faith, he'll say, well, show me your works, because the two go hand in hand and cannot be separated from each other because works always immediately follow what happens as a result of saving faith. But they always follow the saving faith. 
they never proceeded. And is it this, maybe this murky understanding of it was the reason that maybe Luther was a little bit standoffish about James. He, he tended to rank it a little bit lower in terms of usefulness, right. in terms of the epistles. Right, so James uh, Luther famously calls this the epistle of straw, uh, that it doesn't have a lot of value. He, he, he doesn't want to uh, not interact with it, but he's always cautious around it. But part of that is his context, because the thing he's working against is a church that has said, in order to be saved, you must earn that salvation, that you have to make payment for what you have done. You have to go this extra effort to show that you are earning your place in heaven, that you're earning the merits of heaven. And because he's reacting to that, he's hesitant to talk about anything that even gives you a whiff of, of works being important because it's an it's his overreaction to the thing he's working against and we all do this we all overstate our case and overreact to different things um i think a, a really good contemporary example of that would be um, a child of an alcoholic who becomes a teetotaler that there's no amount of alcohol that can be useful because they saw the destruction it brought into their own family and so for them, there's not even the chance for there to be healthy moderation of alcohol because they only saw the destruction that it wrought. Luther is very hesitant to talk about James or to have people interact with James, not because it's a bad gospel, but because he sees that people are still too close to the destruction that works, works righteousness have brought into the church. So with all of that in mind, as kind of the background of what's leading us into chapter 3, could you read verses 1 and 2 for us, please? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Thank you. It's interesting that James begins this section by arguing against more teachers in the church, because this seems contrary to the thing that we are always trying to do, um, But because we're always in search of teachers. We need Sunday school teachers. We need VBS volunteers. We need people who are willing to teach. But James is saying, nope, not, not all of you should do this. Be careful. Why does James say that not everyone should be teachers? Because we all stumble. Because we all stumble, which is true, and those who are teachers will be judged with greater strictness. And so while it is true, we are always looking for people to teach and be involved in teaching, even still we recognize that not all should be teachers. Um, we ask teachers to undergo a background check to make sure that we can keep um, that we do what we can to try and keep children safe. Um, in order to become a pastor, the church body says that you have to have been a member of a Missouri Synod congregation for at least three years to try and make sure that, they, that the men who are entering the ministry know what the living the Lutheran faith looks like and have, are, are not caught up in the frenzy of a, a recent convert. Um, but there, even within our Constitution, we say that there are certain things 
that prevent some people from serving in certain offices and things like living in open sin uh, or unrepentant sin. Those sorts of things prevent teachers as well. And so in the same way that James is saying, not all of you should be teachers, we actually say the same thing. Uh, while we encourage people to step into that, we do recognize that it is not the right fit for everyone. And so this is related, as I was indicating, to Paul's exhortation that not everyone should be a pastor or an elder. It needs to be a man who's above reproach. Why would speech, though, because James focuses in on speech, why would that be important to James? How does that contrast to the ethical life for which Paul advocates? So Paul looks more at things like the husband of one wife, above ill repute, uh, raises the children in the faith and manages his household well, is not prone to drunkenness or fighting. But James looks at speech. A lot of that is from his letters to Timothy, right? Correct. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, where he lays that all out. Yes, but and so he's looking at those types of things. James looks at speech. Why would he look at speech instead of the other parts of the life that Paul focuses on? Well, Paul is talking about things you can X, in other words, not not what you say, it's what you mm -hmm. do. Right. Um, but um, it it's because so much um, so much damage can be done by by what is said by right. what you say, and so I think perhaps he's looking at it from the standpoint of well, it's obvious if you see somebody doing something, committing mm -hmm. an act that is obviously against uh, the word of God, but it's maybe a little bit. One thing that, that he doesn't focus on as much is what is said, right. and so he's kind of filling in that gap from. Paul. Right, and what is said is so important. I think you've probably heard me say this before, and I'm pretty certain I've said it in a sentence, that the most dangerous thing for a Christian to encounter is teaching that's close but not quite. Because if it's close but not quite, we tend to tolerate it. Like, oh, it's close enough, it'll be okay. The problem is, is those little variations eventually make a really big difference, and then you end up with something that's not the Christian faith. And uh, that's what he's getting at here. James knows the power of speech to be able to sway people and move them off the mark. We see this happen with politicians. Politicians are often not publicly humiliated after they make a mistake in their speech. And the way they speak tends to influence the way people see them. So we've had politicians who've seen as uh, kind of bumbling or um, President George W. Bush was often uh, criticized for making up words as he was speaking. And so it led to this uh, caricature of him. Um, the um, governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, when she was running, and she had that line uh, when she was asked in a debate about what would make her good for foreign policy, and she quipped that she could see Russia from her porch. People really... Uh, made a caricature out of her because of that, because she had these one-liners. What she was trying to get at was that she's done foreign policy because Russia's her next-door neighbor, as is Canada. But in saying, I can see Russia from my porch, that line, along with her put lipstick on a pig line and being um, all of those different things that she said created this um, character of her 
that made Saturday Night Live very popular during her campaign. Um, and she, she got caught up in that very, very quickly. But if we look at politicians and where they fail, what does that teach us about the leaders and those who hold authority in the church then? Well, that their words are examined very carefully and should mm -hmm. be examined very carefully. They should be examined very carefully. Um, but it's also a warning that things that you say can come back around to haunt you. Um, and you need to be careful about the, not only the things you say, but the way that you say them. So with that in mind, let's move into the rest of the section. We'll take chapter, or verses 3 through 12 all as one chunk because what he's going to do is give us three examples. Uh, this is called a serial depiction. Uh, three examples back-to-back -back of how words can cause destruction. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So as we move into this section, James reveals a little bit about himself here. And if anybody who's listening to the Bible study has been trained in the classics or took Latin, this section should sound very familiar to them because he's revealing that he has been trained and educated in the classics because he's relying on images first proposed by Plutarch and Philo when they wrote on the power of words and gossip in their writings. And so he's actually using imagery that comes to him through Plutarch and Philo in their works about gossip. And so we see this pulling in of Greek literature in um, being able to express what's happening um, with the with the problem of gossip, but the the maybe more learned listeners of his audience would have been the only ones who would have picked up on it. Right, it's, but it's still it's an illustration that anybody can grasp. Right, it's an illustration yeah. anybody yeah. can grasp. But what he's doing is for those who've read those works, he's now backfilling all of that discussion on gossip into these short verses that he's put together simply by choosing those illustrations. It's accessible because everybody can picture these images, but it's also incredibly dense because of all of the background information that people who are familiar with the classics would immediately pull on as they are reading this. Those other works would come into mind. But what a great preaching device, because you probably aspire to that same thing, that you, you want to reach as wide of an audience as you can. Right. So, you would want to reach the ones who are familiar with those classics, and, and but yet it's right. an illustration anybody can, 
can relate to. Right, yes, and it is a challenge to do. And sometimes you achieve and meet that challenge, and sometimes you fall miserably short, either by preaching a, a, a sermon that lacks depth because nobody caught what you were alluding to, or is really deep because they all did and you put too much of it in. It's a very hard thing to navigate as someone who's constructing um, a text. So with each of these examples, James is illustrating one common theme. What is that theme? It's, it's that the tongue, the, the tongue is, um, it's, it's impossible to check the tongue. Right, your tongue just gets you in so much trouble. Open mouth, insert foot. Um, if you don't have anything nice, don't say anything at all, to quote Thumper. Um, <laughs> don't say nothing bad about nobody. Um, all of those things, how many different ways do parents have to tell their kids, be careful what you say because somebody's listening? This is the challenge, isn't it? doesn't matter how careful you are, eventually you're going to say the wrong thing. Or you may say the right thing, but you say it in the wrong way. It's just all of these things. And so this is what James is, is getting at. The challenge then is how do we tame the tongue? In verses 7 and 8, so we talked about the first section there with those three examples, the bit in the mouth of a horse, a ship with a rudder, and then the forest fire. But in verses 7 and 8, we know he even brings in the topic of Genesis and Adam and Eve. Every kind of bee, bee, blah, blah, blah. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can time, tame the tongue. He's talking about how Adam and Eve have fulfilled their obligation to subdue creation and have dominion over it, yet what got them in trouble? It wasn't any of the great beasts of creation, it was their tongue. He even gives us this glimpse of a reference to the poison of the snake bite and the destruction of um, the poison of a snake bite and the destruction wrought by Satan. Um, and it comes, he puts that in at the end of verse 8 is restless, evil, full of deadly poison, the tongue. And so you get this image of Satan even coming, and it's through that, uh, the deception that his tongue brings that creation falls. Well, and, and the and the transmission of that same deception through Eve, you know, she she right. heard the deception and she, with her tongue, continued it onto Adam. Right. Well, and Eve and Adam even failed because Eve reveals she's not been instructed correctly because Satan says, "Is it true that you um, can't eat of the fruit in the middle of the garden?" And she says, "Yes, we cannot eat of the fruit of the garden, nor can we touch it." God never says they can't touch it. They can touch it all they want to. They just can't eat it. Uh, so it is likely that Adam even conveyed to her a barrier that was greater than the one God put into place. And so we see their tongue is what's getting them in, into trouble. So then he goes on in verse 9 to, to point out the incongruity that exists within human behavior. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. It's like the phrase of, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? Uh, <laughs> the reality that um, we are both saint and sinner at the same time, and the two coexist inside of us. And he's saying it shouldn't. 
You should never expect a salt pond to give you fresh water, a fig tree to bear olives, or a grapevine to produce figs. And yet we have this expectation that the holy people of God are going to keep on sinning. There's a real tension there because we acknowledge that we are, we acknowledge that we are both. We're both saint and sinner. Mm-hmm. But yet the, the, his exhortation is, is that um, this is not an optimal state of being. Right. That we need to aspire to being um, the, the one, not, not both of them together in the mm-hmm. same. Like he, he uses the il- illustration of the spring. It can't be both fresh and salt water. So you can't, you can't have both or you shouldn't encourage both to, to abide in you. You mm-hmm. want, it's, it's, an, it's an either or. Right. Yes. And so we should not desire that. We should not resign ourselves to the fact that we're both saint and sinner at the same time. But we should be striving to become better at taming our tongue over the course of a lifetime. And that is where he's driving at with the not everyone should be a teacher. That those who are better practiced at that, they are the ones who step into the role. Not because we expect per- perfection from them, but because we know that we can expect that they have, are making an attempt to control their tongue and do this in a way uh, that will allow them to share the word of God as purely and correctly as possible. So the goal would be to do it without error, but the expectation is the attempt is going to be made. Right, so the, 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 the saint and sinner idea is that way of offering us that grace that we know that we are going to mm-hmm. sin and we're, we're going to fail to be, to be uh, righteous all the time. Correct. And so we, we recognize that, but we also don't relish that fact. Um, I read an article one time where a pastor said that, because one of, for, con- for congruity's sake, um, a pastor should be thinking about his physical motions as he's leading the service. They should match what he's doing. And I read an article one time where a pastor said that when you hear the confession on Sunday morning, I, a poor and miserable sinner, confess to you all my sins and iniquities, so on and so forth, that the pastor, instead of standing up, turning around with a smile because he's proclaiming the good news of Christ and the forgiveness of sins, should roll his eyes and say, yeah, you really don't intend to do this again? How come you're coming back next week? Uh, <laughs> but we don't because we have this hope that Christ will return and it will all be fixed. At the same time that we also know, y'all are coming back next week. Well, and, and, and so by not making a, a maybe a, a lighter gesture like that, you're acknowledging the, the, the soberness of, the, of, it, right. of what you're doing right there because it's the reality of sin. It's, it's right. a sobering thing. Right. Yes. And uh, the reality is, unless Christ returns, I have job security in the fact that people are going to need forgiveness next Sunday because I know that I'm going to need it next Sunday. And never should you think that the pastor uh, believes he is outside of the need of forgiveness as well. So the hymn that you've chosen for this week is The Tree of Life, Lutheran Service Book, page 561. Which was suggested to me by, by your, um, your references to our James passage today that, that, well, James references, actually, to the, the Garden of Eden. 
And we have this great hymn in the hymnal that really lays out the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And it is, um, it is by Stephen Starkey, who is a, a living uh, Lutheran LCMS mm -hmm. pastor. And we have quite a number of his hymn texts in our, our Lutheran service book. And this is one of his earlier efforts. And even though it was one of his earlier efforts, he has said that he thinks it's one of his best. Okay. Because Which for him, the amount of hymns he's written is a significant statement to make. Right. Or it could be one of those cases where, um, you know, your, some of your early efforts are some of your best inspirations, and then you've, once you've committed those to paper, maybe the ones that follow that are maybe not as, not as inspired. You used or, all your good work you're, in you're, the first well, one. <laughs> you're working a little bit harder to try to find those, those new inspirations. Um, so maybe it's a case of that, maybe not. Uh, uh, let, let's hope that he still has many good texts right. left, left in him. And he so far is showing that he does. Yes, yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful text that was inspired to him. His inspiration for it was the, 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 the preface or that, uh, that prayer that comes right before uh, communion at the beginning of Holy Week, where the phrase is, um, and that he who was who by a tree um, once overcame, likewise by a tree might be overcome. It's that reference to um, Satan coming through the tree in the garden and that there's the image of the cross being a tree, mm -hmm. that that was the means by which Christ overcame evil and overcame Satan. So um, those two are tied together very often, and so that's why it's placed at the beginning of, of Holy Week. But uh, I wouldn't have guessed that that was his his inspiration for it. The, the reading of the creation in the Garden of Eden comes up a couple of different times in the church here. It comes up at the beginning of, uh, of Lent. We hear the story mm -hmm. of, of creation. Um, also, it appears uh, in um, the readings for the, the Easter Vigil at the beginning of right. the Easter Vigil. And a, another time during ordinary, uh, the ordinary time of year during the, the um, the, the B year. We happened to be in the B year, but we didn't get it this year because it was so early. It's in the one year. of the early readings. Right. So it does appear at other times of the year that we have the creation story. And, but regardless of that, it's a, it's a wonderful revisiting of the whole fall of creation and then the redemption from creation. The hymn, uh, I talked about the inspiration for the text. It was this, this preface from Holy Week. The tune that was in the composer's mind, and he always uh, starts with a tune and then kind of uh, maps his words onto mm -hmm. the tune. The tune that was in his head was a Christmas tune called the Wexford Carol. I don't know. Do, do, do you know that tune? I am familiar with the Wexford Carol, yes. Okay. I know it, it's not extremely popular, but it's also not unfamiliar. No, it's, it's, a, it's an Irish tune. It's a beautiful modal kind of Irish tune has the same uh, meter, has the same mm -hmm. uh, poetic meter as this particular tune, um, and uh, actually has a si similar melodic shape to it as well. But it was uh, deemed that, that if when the pairing of this particular text to that particular tune would probably be a little too challenging for congregations. Okay. And so he asked, uh, for the creation of a new tune, and, and Bruce Becker, who is a a choral music educator in the in the Minneapolis area, 
obliged and created this new tune that he felt was a little bit more user-friendly for congregations. Now, I would disagree with that. If it's a folk tune, it should be right. And I, I've never thought of Wexford Carol as a challenging tune, less familiar Christmas-wise, maybe a little outside of the realm of a typical hymn tune. Right. And I'm guessing that that was maybe where their, their sense of... of it, so Wexford Carol doesn't appear at all as a tune in our hymnal? It does not. It does not. Hmm. Um, this tune very closely resembles that, uh, that particular tune, though. Um, well, obviously, in terms of its meter, but so that it matches the words. But, it, but the, just the profile of it matches it as well. And so that was created. The text was written in 1993. Two years later, the composer wrote uh, the, the tune for it in, in 95. And it first appeared in a hymnal in, in 1996. And I, I looked up to see how widely known or used this particular hymn is. It only appears in, in four different Lutheran hymnals, uh, a couple of ours and a couple from our, from our uh, sister Lutheran churches. So it's only really known in Lutheran circles. Hopefully it'll become better known outside of that because it, it is a very, very well-crafted mm -hmm. text. Um, and for that reason, I think it's very hard to decide which stanzas to actually sing because you hate to miss any part of it. The, the, it because it tells the whole story, which is a, another right. reminder of why maybe it's a little, little unwise to chop stanzas out of a hymn because you're missing some very important parts. Um, it lays out the, the history of the fall, but then also the, the gospel message comes in in stanza three, and then uh, stanza four nicely rounds out the whole text. And, and poetically, it's, it's, it's beautiful the way he begins with the phrase, the tree of life, and then the very last phrase of the hymn, he returns to that again, the, the tree of life with every good. So for that reason, it's a little bit hard to decide which stanzas to sing, but maybe maybe just for the sake of a nice rounded shape, we'll sing just one and four. Sounds good. Uh, let's get a little bit again, close to the piano here. Let's get this get a pitch from the piano. The tree of life with every And of its fruit, so pure and sweet, come that the man and woman eat. Yet in this garden also grew another tree of which they knew. Its lovely limbs with fruit adorned against whose eating God had warned. Now from that tree of Jesus' shame flows an eternal in his name. For all who trust and will believe Salvation's living fruit receive, and of this fruit so pure and sweet, 
The Lord invites the world to lead, to find within this cross of wood the tree of life with every good. One criticism I've, I've heard of this tune is that maybe it's just a little bit too repetitious. Do you find it to be that? No, that would not be the criticism I would level against oh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, do, <laughs> I don't find it to be repetitious. Maybe over. Maybe their their thought is over the over span the of four. four stanzas that maybe there's not quite enough variety in the tune. Right, but I I was thinking more of how does this relate to because it's clearly linked to the folk song sort of thing or sort of uh, history, and you can hear that in that background that. Ba -da -da -da, oh. da -da -da -da. Very much the shape and the and the mode of it sounds a lot like a folk song. So he he did a really excellent job, I think, imitating that, that right. other Irish tune, but not copying it. Yeah, and as I'm listening to it, it also strikes me that this would lend itself very easily to a choral setting. That that's where this tune could be fleshed out is in and brought in some varieties and the different texturing you get through a formal choral setting of this piece as opposed to just a hymn setting well and, and that that seems perfectly natural given that the composer is a, a choral music person right. he probably always has that in his background right i'm going to write a melody that that would lend itself uh uh, to for that further expansion music right and i just as i was singing it and thinking about it that's what kept coming to mind is this would be a beautiful choral piece particularly for a women's choir or a children's choir where you get that more of the uh where you get kind of that ethereal sense because of the pitching of the voices it could be a very beautiful children's choir piece mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting you mentioned uh you you asked the question whether the wexford carol was in our hymnal it is not but it is in other hymnals so other hymnal editorial committees have not shied away, away from it as being too mm -hmm. challenging. So I, I find that kind of interesting. Do you remember the tune off the top of your head? Because we've talked about it enough. People oh. may be interested oh. in knowing what the Wexford Carol actually sounds right. like. Right. This, this tune begins. The Wexford Carol is very similar. Similarity oh, between the he two. He definitely linked the two. There's no doubt about that. We're getting some static play in the microphones somewhere. It's probably because I was moving around. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Oh, Christ, have mercy upon us. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who Lord, art in heaven, hallowed, hallowed be thy, thy name. Thy, thy kingdom, kingdom come, come, thy will be done. done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, at this hour you hung upon the cross, 
stretching out your loving arms to embrace the world in your death. Grant that all people of the earth may look to you and see their salvation. For your mercy's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.